heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Andy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung on and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome to Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is episode number five as we continue our way around the country on the back of baseball's history. Thanks for finding us, and really appreciate you subscribing and downloading everything we've done so far here and helping spread the word any way you can. So far, we've made stops in St. Louis with Stan Musial, New York with Phil Rizzuto, Brooklyn and Los Angeles with Vin Scully and back to the Midwest with George Brett in Kansas City. Today we start in New England, make our way over to Chicago and bring it back post-career to both Boston and eventually once again Cooperstown. Our fifth Hall of Famer in this series, Carlton Fisk, is our first to actually wear two uniforms in his storied career. While he is more noted for his time with the Red Sox and he did choose the Boston Bee for his hat on his Hall of Fame plaque, what might not be known by the masses is that he had 1,000 more at-bats in a White Sox uniform than the one he did wear in Boston. More hits, more doubles, more home runs and RBI, but of course his and one of the game's all-time moments happened at 12.34 a.m. on October 22, 1975 in Fenway Park. A game, and more importantly, a moment that changed not only the way that baseball was going to be televised, but how all sports were now going to be covered. Player emotions were now part of the story, more cameras in the building, and the first big moment in the game's history to be broadcast under the lights, which led to the advent of water cooler talk the next day. And honestly, it all happened because of a rat in the green monster. One other note in this moment, the live shot was the flight of the ball, the way it had always been done. But in the truck, as the left field camera and the monster angle was shown on a monitor, producer Roy Hammerman made an Emmy award-winning decision. Play it. Play it again. And again. Twelve times in total. Mike Schmidt's jubilant 500th, Ozzie Smith's playoff home run heroics, Kirk Gibson's fist pump, Joe Carter's World Series clincher all stemmed from Fisk and NBC's moment. In our conversation from the early 2000s, a couple of years after his 2000 Hall of Fame induction, we will include the beginning of his career, but also will include his upbringing and how a guy's small hometown can shape a personality that will be worn on his sleeve for his entire career. Tough, stoic, scrapper, guardian of how the game should be played. Ask Thurman Munson, ask Lou Pinella, ask Deion Sanders. More widely known as Pudge, his other nickname, the Commander, was more fitting. We will talk of an injury that almost ended it all before it really got started. We will talk about the brawls, the rivalry with the Yankees, his departure from the Red Sox, and of course that Tuesday, October night turned into Wednesday morning in 1975, and what happened later on that same day, same day in Game 7. The man was beat up and worked and willed his body to a 22-year career. He caught more games than any man in history upon his retirement and held that record until 2009. 
My lead up to spending over 30 minutes with him was rooted in the fact that the first time we talked, we spoke about him catching Tom Seaver's 300th win in Yankee Stadium on Phil Rizzuto Day in what was to me a very bittersweet moment. I told Carlton as a kid, Tom Seaver was my favorite player. And when this took place, and the fact that it was in a White Sox uniform was almost disheartening. I mentioned to him that I'm not sure there had ever been a battery that worked a game in their careers any harder. Got everything out of their bodies and went out with a tank empty. It was at that moment we scheduled the day to spend this time together. One last thing about Carlton Fisk. He's six foot two. In today's game, that means he's just another guy. But when you saw Carlton Fisk stand up behind home plate, there was nothing that looked six foot two about him. I'll say it. He was the biggest six foot two guy in the history of everything. Here he is, Hall of Famer, Carlton Fisk. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Fenway Park for the sixth game of the 1975 World Series. First ball has been tossed in, another game gets underway. Watch this now. Fisk has got to have rule. Armbrister right in his way. I have got to say right there, he interfered with him. Kurt, a big, a big, big break for Cincinnati and a play that is destined to go down as a very, very controversial call on the part of Larry Barnett. Hey, hey, Red Sox, we're all. Except maybe murder. Tonight, my trek to speak to every living Hall of Famer continues. We've got a gentleman, class of 2000, Hall of Famer Carlton Fisk. We're going to talk about a number of things, but first and foremost, congratulations, Carlton, a couple of years late on being inducted into Cooperstown. Well, it's never too late to be congratulated on that. That's, uh, that's you know, it's not something you think about when you play, but boy, when it's when you're done playing and you're considered uh, one of the best who's ever played, it's it's quite a thrill. And it's also now your new first name is actually Hall of Famer Carlton Fisk because <laughs> that's kind of how they introduce you every place, I'm sure. That's right. It either comes before or after. As long as they don't forget it, that's <laughs> all right with me. Now, let me ask you something. We're going to talk about your career in a second, but you get elected in your second year of eligibility. Were you a little bit surprised by that, that you didn't go in the first year? Um, at first I was, but then I, you know, then you sort of uh, look at the situation. You know, the three guys that went in the year before me, Brett, Yount, and Ryan, mm-hmm. uh, obviously very deserving um, you know, it's difficult to say why, but uh, I felt at the time that I was as good at my position as they were at theirs for the length of time that they were. But but then you think uh, it, it took Joe DiMaggio three years to get in, Yogi Bear a couple of three years to get in. And and uh, so not was I only in good company on not getting in, I'm in great company on getting in. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this too. too. I'm not too disappointed. <laughs> Whitey Ford is another guy that it took two years, and I think that was Yankee backlash. And I think in your case, it might have been just a numbers game that the idea of four guys going in immediately and that quickly might have been something that the writers weren't ready to do, perhaps. I think that's probably true. The funny part about it is I think we all uh, discuss it at one time or another. You know, from one year to the next, uh, your career never got any better. Yep. So uh, you're either deserving one year or you're 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 not. And we can't understand how some guys are passed over, like Tony Perez, the same year that I went in. 
um, Tony was in, and he was in his ninth year. So. And the, yeah, the fluctuation of votes never really made much sense to me, especially when you talk about big jumps in percentages, right? Or, or big drops in percentages. For I the, guess it all. Uh, the, the you know the bottom line is, and the the biggest uh, the hurdle or biggest biggest satisfaction is that eventually we we both did get in, yep. and regardless of whether you got in on the first year with the most votes ever, or the ninth year like Tony Perez, or in the Veterans Committee voting. You still say Hall of Fame either before or after your name, so that's that's pretty cool. And that plaque is there forever. Yes, it is. Now let me ask you something. Growing up, if you had a choice, Celtics or Red Sox, what would you have done? <laughs> well, at the time I was growing up, I wanted to be a Celtics. You know, I wanted to be a power forward for the Celtics, but uh, you know, <laughs> you know, physicality's <laughs> come into play there a lot. So, uh, what, ki- what kind of basketball player were you? Oh, I was uh, an All-State basketball player in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Granted, and I played in a couple state tournaments that went to the, the finals for our high school uh, classification. So I really enjoyed that game. But, you know, when I went to the University of New Hampshire on a basketball scholarship and, and, and played in just a, in a freshman team, at that time freshmen couldn't play any higher than that, and, and we played uh, teams like in the Yankee Conference. And I remember especially the University of Rhode Island where everybody <laughs> that was on the floor was – Six inches taller than me. And I said, well, I think maybe I'll uh, have to go in a different direction. Yeah, wearing that hat and playing outside isn't really so bad after all. <laughs> really. Now, uh, what kind of high school baseball player were you? Well, you know, it's really difficult to tell. When you, If you ever went to my hometown, Charlestown, New Hampshire, I grew up there's only like 800, 900 people in my town. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an old country western saying, you, know, you look both ways. <laughs> my town was so small, you look both ways, you see it all. And that's... <laughs> Basically, what it was, our high school schedule was 12 games. We played Tuesdays and Friday afternoons, and um, and usually a couple games got weathered out. So we played, you know, throughout the course of the year, counting American Legion ball in the summertime. I, you know, I would play about 25 games a year, and so to see that, you know, where I ended up from where I started mm-hmm. in the uh, career of baseball, it's you know, it's unlikely that I that I reached the level that I did. Well, what's really amazing, too, is you're the fourth choice overall. You actually go to the University of New Hampshire for a short time, correct? Right. Um, and a lot of times, guys in that part of the country will absolutely fall through the cracks because there's not enough information on you, and you talk about the mid to late 60s. How the heck did they actually find you up there? <laughs> well, I don't I, That's a good question. All I probably was that, you know, coming from a small high school, I was the, the athlete, mm-hmm. or, you know, the big athlete in, in the town or in the little school conferences we played in. So I did get some recognition there. And then, uh, you know, I think every area has, as baseball calls them, they're, they're bird dogs. And so if there's a, a special athlete that is, uh, you know, cornering a little special interest and, in, you know, somebody finds out about it, but uh, very unlikely most of the time that uh, they go very far. Was there really any kind of negotiation? I mean, when you're the fourth pick overall in the first round, you'd think, okay, ooh, now the games begin. It's you and the Red Sox. I don't know who you sat down with on your end of the table, but how long did that My take? My dad and me. Yeah. <laughs> and we sat down. But, it, you know, it was the fourth pick, but it was the 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 winter draft. Right, the so supplemental like or whatever. The, the supplemental. So right. The, you know, the amount of boys that were involved there weren't as great and obviously probably the amount of uh, recognition or experience that we all had wasn't there um you know it was basically a oh here it is you want to play yeah sure so <laughs> there we go now what about the pressure is there ever a downside to being kind of a hometown phenom i know you weren't growing up in boston but new england people are like southerners very territorial if you're one of us you're one of us 
you get signed by the Red Sox, uh, as great as that can be, is there also maybe a downside to that a little bit? I think sometimes the expectations are maybe the, not expectations so much as, as you know, New England's like one big state. Right. And everybody is part of it. And I think the, you know, the wish level of everybody there wanting all their little hometown boys to make it is so high that, uh, and the percentage of boys that do make it, uh, there is a certain degree of disappointment also. But um, as I played there, you know, people learned to, to came to appreciate the way I played. And then I left there and, uh, you know, everybody was disappointed that I did, myself mm-hmm. included. And uh, But every time I came back to play in Boston, I was received really well. And now, especially uh, after all these years, uh, I go back there, you know, obviously uh, – it helps to go back there as a Hall of Famer, but I'm just treated royally, and it's you know it's really really uh, strokes your ego pretty well. 1969, you get called up. Uh, what do you remember most about that first game in the major leagues? My first at bat was against Mickey Lolich. <laughs> Good luck. Three, three pitches, three swings. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I remember. Now, what do you think about something? I mean, do, do you? I mean, you remember it because you remember the events of it: three pitches, three swings, and go away. Um, Nervousness, excitedness, and what are you actually going through in a moment like that? Do you, uh, are you even aware of what's going on around you? No. No, I was up there, and, and all the guy on the – Eddie Popowski was there, and Eddie Popowski was, just uh, go up there and get your hacks in. Mm-hmm. So Mickey Lillard <laughs> throws me two fastballs right at the top of the zone. Of course, the top of the zone was then the top of the zone as right. opposed to now. The top of the zone is at the belt maybe. This is the top of the zone, and I've had two good swings, fouled them both back. Next pitch was that nasty slider down and into me, and I swung again, and, and I was gone. And what I walked it, back to the dugout, and he says, that's the way to get your hacks in. <laughs> you, you didn't go down without a fight. That's it. Uh, who'd you get your first hit off of? Uh, um, I, got my, I was 0 for 13 in the big leagues before I got my first hit, and I got my first hit in Detroit two years later in 71 off a pitcher, left-handed pitcher named Les Kane. And my first hit in the big leagues was a home run. Well, that's a hell of a way to start it. I mean, it's a great way to break an 0 for 13. Well, it was, too. But, you know, I was just coming off of uh, a nice 0 for 8 against Mel Stottlemyre and Stan Bonson. <laughs> and I didn't know that I'd ever get a hit in the big leagues. Do you remember seeing yourself on a baseball card for the first time? Uh, I don't remember that it was anything particular. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember seeing it, but... Uh, you know, I just thought that's if you played baseball, that's what happened. What about Pudge? Where did that actually come from? Well, that actually came when I was just a, a little knucklehead. You know, I was about, I was 36 pounds at a year old. And is that normal? <laughs> evidently not. <laughs> and, but, and that sort of that, you know, pudginess lasted until I was uh, between my freshman and sophomore year in high school. And, uh, in a nine-month period, I grew to eight inches, and that was, uh, that was the end of that. Yeah, that'll lean you out. Yeah. Now, we'll talk about it later. You actually took very good care of your body. I mean, your physical fitness regimen, I know you worked out with your sons later, or your son later in your career. I mean, that was really a big part of your game, was it not? Well, it turned out to be because after my uh, – in my third year, I had my knee destroyed at home plate in Cleveland mm-hmm. when Leron Lee jumped on my leg as I was waiting for a throw from the outfield. And just basically destroyed my knee. I had it reconstructed in 74, you know, back in the the days and times of you know, 
prehistoric knee surgery, I guess. Uh, well, there was a lot of good luck to your son as they patted you on the back yeah, probably when you left the doctor's basically office. Basically said, uh, it's nice knowing you. You'll yeah. probably never play again. And that's when I, you know, that's when I got into uh, really knowing that, that there are other, well, I really had to concentrate mm -hmm. on what it took to play baseball, not uh, what I could, uh, how many baskets I could make in the offseason. It was, everything then was conditioning program. And that was before conditioning programs. Um, to get myself ready to play baseball, and that's uh, that's when I first took hold of that. Now, I bet you a lot of people don't realize they know 1975 because of the Game 6 home run, the Ed Armbruster situation, and obviously the excitement of that series, but you don't play that whole season in 75. You actually come back beyond the midpoint, correct? That's true because I had my knee, you know, basically broken at home plate in June of 74, and then I came back in uh, June of 75, and just play the second half of the year. And I'll tell you what, my knee hurt every day. Was there a nervousness about, I mean, was it almost like starting over and then that on top of that, your knee is hurting and you're wondering how long am I going to be able to do this? I didn't know how long my knee was going to hold up. And I was, uh, you know, nobody had ever come back from the reconstructive surgery on their knees to, you know, to play. Can I ask a... That uh, position anyways. Yeah, I was just going to say, why were you still catching then? Uh, because that's <laughs> that's what I knew how to do, mm -hmm. I guess. Uh, so I came back and, you, you know, you make a, a commitment or a vow to yourself that I want to come back to try to play at the same level I did before, mm -hmm. you know, just maybe as a challenge more than anything. And, and I got behind that challenge and ended up playing, you know, a year after I had my knee done and, and it wasn't until a year after that, that it started to feel good. So, but it was pretty exciting to go through that that World Series. Wow. You know what it felt as though? It felt as though that well, all the work I put in to get back to try to play, um, to be rewarded with a, a World Series, just, you know, just one of those moments in, you know, quote, in the universe where it's your moment and it was sort of a reward. Everything lines up. The Ed Armbrister situation, we'll talk about game three real quickly. Um, that collision at home plate, I know you, it certainly looks like interference, whatever interference is in the books. Um, they win that game, Cincinnati. How long does it take? I mean, are, are you able as a competitor to just block that one out of you? so hacked off about losing a game in a situation like that where it's a little bit more difficult? It was more difficult, for sure. But uh, because, it, you know, the World Series is so immediate, so visible, you, you try to put it behind you. But I think, uh, you know, in the, in the back of your brain, it's, you know, it's still festering, but you, you try to put it in the right slot and, and – uh, get on with the series. Yeah, if it's a Tuesday in June against the Angels, probably yeah. a hell of a lot easier than a Game 3 <laughs> in, right. in 75. Now, besides your home run in Game 6, what do you remember most about that game? Um, remember most about that particular game? Yeah. Well, I remember probably two things, and one was Bernie Carbo's home run late in the game to tie it up. And how about the swing he took That's right That's exactly what I was going to say. He was probably had the worst swing of any major <laughs> leaguer in the history of the game to stay alive, and then he probably had one of the best swings. Mm -hmm. uh, his next swing was probably the best swing you could ever have as a as a major league player. Um, the contrast with those two swings was just <laughs> so wide. You just you know after he he had the worst swing, you went oh man, he's out. Right. He's never again. All of a sudden, bang! He puts a swing on the ball. It, it's a you know, a beautiful home run. 
And then uh, um, Denny Doyle getting thrown out of the plate there in the bottom of the ninth yep. was, uh, was the other thing that I remember. And, and think about that. You just talked about how the, the stars have to align to have it be your moment. You need everything leading up to your at-bat that everybody talks about and remembers to actually have it play out the way it did. Absolutely, because, uh, you know, probably 95% of the time, Doyle will score on that ball. Right. And But George... Foster made a one-hot, perfect throw to the plate, and he was out. Now, everybody has, and you certainly witnessed one up close and in person, you know, Bucky Dent when he hits his home run at 78. Oh, the, you had to remind no, me. No, hold on, but, but, but there's a reason, and we'll get to we'll get to the negative part of it in a second. <laughs> but everybody always has a story. Well, that wasn't Bucky's bat. You know, somebody handed him a bat. That wasn't it. Your home run. Please tell me that, you know, and, and Sean Green the other day, well, you know, the guy, I did I broke the bat on that last home run in the day that he hit four home runs. And I, everybody's always got a story about the bat of the moment. What's yours? My story is it wasn't my bat either. Come on. No I've kidding. never heard anybody hit a big home run no with kidding. their own bat. It's funny because, uh, you know, that, that game got late and my bat was just, uh, it just felt heavy. I said, uh, and Rick Burleson using the same model, but it was a half inch shorter mm -hmm. and a half ounce or an ounce lighter. And... You know, I picked up my bat and it felt like it had a, it had the weight ring on the end of it. You know, at the end of that night, so I said, I said, Rooster, Rooster, you got a bat I can use? He said, Oh yeah, take this one, use this one. And sure enough, it was the, it was the one. Where did the bat end up? Did did Cooperstown or or did anybody? It's hanging come? on my wall right now. Good for you. Good for you. I, I Listen, I, I know it's the Hall of Fame and your plaque is up there, but those are certain things. It's really funny to me when guys give up those historical bats, especially. Hell, I'll give you my hat. I'll give you my shoes. The bat is something I want because I might well, want to hit with it again. You know, the funny part about it is when you think about that, I set the record for most games caught. Yep. And the Hall of Fame wanted my wanted my uh, mask and, or wanted something from that game, so I was going to donate my mask. So you send your mask to them, and they never get it. And that's the thing that scared me most about giving up that stuff is that somewhere along the line it disappears and nobody knows where it went so in other words in a box that says return address c fisk all of a sudden somebody decides so let me take a look at this uh, really thing. that's exactly really that. i use all kinds of diversionary tactics when i do <laughs> stuff like that but it didn't work on that one did you have to pay burleson for the bat to keep it uh, actually no okay well that's no. good um what the pitch itself what were you expecting? Was it what you were expecting? I mean, again, we talked about your first at bat, how you're. I was, you know, at that time, I don't think, uh, you know, I don't know why I was as accomplished as a hitter as I was later on. Mm -hmm. That I don't know if I was looking for anything. Usually you can say, well, yeah, he usually does this and he usually does that. And so through the whole calculated anticipation of what pitch may come or where it may be, uh, it just didn't register. I guess probably I was looking for. Um, you know, he got behind on me. First pitch was a ball, and then I guess I was just looking for a fastball, and he did throw me one. And you know what's different about the World Series? Um, you don't have a, a past with a guy like Darcy. I That's mean, it's, right. there's no one in league play. He's a relief pitcher. You, you know, it really is different than facing a team for the 12th time or a guy for the 12th it time. It sure is. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what makes it uh, so exciting. And as, as uh, you know, now there's some interleague play, and you face teams less and less. Scattering uh, reports, a lot computers. of fewer, you know, my, many fewer times than you used to face mm -hmm. them. So, you're facing guys you never don't even know whether they throw right-handed or left-handed <laughs> hardly. If somebody didn't have you, have you have a report on them. Now, what did you do that night? I mean, and, and I know there's a game seven coming, but do you go right home? Is it easy to sleep? Is it difficult to sleep? It's, it was very, very difficult to sleep. I didn't, I didn't get to sleep till early, early. 
in the morning mm-hmm. and uh and then end up all charged up uh before noontime so it's and then I was tired the next night. Yeah. Now, do you think when you go to bed or you finally fall asleep, or maybe the difficulty in falling asleep is not only do you have an opportunity to win a Game 7, but it's a Game 7 for the Boston Red Sox. And even though it's been another 27 years and it still hangs over, can you even imagine what happens? And do you think in these terms that if we win Game 7, there is going to be a celebration like this town has never seen before? No, I don't think any of us thought no. beyond, uh, you know, beyond playing. It would have been really spectacular if if we had one. Mm-hmm. And I was so early in my career, I don't think I, and a lot of us were, because a lot of us came up, you know, from '72 to '75 from Fred Lynn and and uh, Jimmy Rice. And that's another thing. One of the reasons that that uh, maybe each game was decided by one run, and maybe the reason that we didn't come out a winner was that Jimmy never played. Yep. Because he broke his hand, geez, on the last series of the year. But uh, you know, Dwight came up in '72, and all our all the guys we had on our team that came up through the organization, which was probably, you know, was more than half the team, all came up in the previous three years. So, so you didn't have any of this ban- curse of the Bambino crap hanging over your head. No, or... We didn't even know about that. Stuff. Yeah, it's just go play baseball, and we got a shot to win the World That's Series. Right. Um, game seven, you guys obviously don't win it. What about that night? What happens, and what happens over the next couple of days when you lose something like that? Well, you know the. What happened in that series was there was, you know, one of those weather patterns that came through Boston that extended that series out about two weeks, mm-hmm. uh, with all the rain that was there. Um, so it was hard to really keep. You know, we had we we had it going, and then we had rain. We didn't play for two or three days, and then we had rain delays, and and we were ahead in in one game, and Bill Lee was pitching. We had an hour or more rain delay, and we had a three to nothing lead, and and end up losing the game. So uh, I, I've felt as though if it, if it hadn't been raining, that we would have, we would have maybe, we'd have won that series. Yeah, had normalcy maybe actually been around for that because time I period? Think most of those, the, most of the, the Reds players were a little more experienced than we were. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't supposed to be able to compete with them because they were the big red machine. Right. And uh, so maybe they were able to, you know, uh, with that experience, to hold on to their focus a little better. Now, I mentioned Bucky, 78 season. Everybody knows about what happened during the course of the season. They get Bernie Carver was traded that year, was he not? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Bill Lee, I guess, didn't he have a one day retirement? <laughs> didn't he come <laughs> Who in? Who knows and say, with him? <laughs> but, but in 78, was there a panic mode August and September, or what actually was, how did it all turn out the way it did? Well, obviously, in the first half of the year, we started off really well and playing extremely well. And then our team started to break down. Um, everybody was hurt. Fred Lynn had a torn groin muscle. I had two broken ribs that I played the last seven weeks with. And Burleson had two sprained ankles that he hobbled around on. And Yaz had a torn ligament in his wrist. And, you know, Dewey had a bad knee. And so what happened was the same names were in the lineup, but the same talent never you know, we never approached right. the talent that we were supposed to have, the names we're supposed to have, because of our injury level. You know, it's really funny. You mentioned that, that tear in the wrist of, of Yaz. I remember all the pictures of him with that white tape. When you had a tear, what did they do? Well, they took some white tape and they wrapped yeah. the wrist up. And, and he said, used to tape his wrist so tight that his hand would turn blue, almost like a tourniquet. And and, uh, and he never, you know, he never flinched. He went out there every day. But we, we, uh, 
we had the same names out there, but obviously with the injuries, we weren't the same talent. And then uh, the Yankees came in the first part of September and just beat the dog out of us for four games. And then we went to uh, New York, and they beat the dog out of us two games more. And uh, then we beat them the last day there, and it sort right. of turned us around a little bit. And then we went on to win 14 of the next 16 games. Which a lot of people don't really remember they, because they know the end result. That's right. They don't remember that. It's just maybe we just started getting a little bit healthier mm-hmm. and were able to perform at a little bit higher level. I don't think any of us ever achieved the, the level that we played in the first half. But, geez, we had a bunch of bulldogs here the last uh, three weeks of the season. And we talked about memorable plays. I remember Pinella had a play out in oh. right field in that game that oh. probably is the play of that season, is it not? Absolutely. You know, the sun sets in, uh, and shines right in the right fielder's eyes, and he says that he couldn't see a thing, and he just stuck out his hands, and the ball happened to hit the ground. And and if it was two, three, it was, you know, three feet one way or another, mm-hmm. the ball just, you know, that was in the playoffs, you know, the, the 163rd game. Right. Uh, that if that ball was just, Three feet one way or another, we win that game, and we go on to the World Series. Now, Bucky comes up, and, and obviously nobody expects what to happen to, to actually happen. Are you thinking that way as a catcher? I, I know what kind of damage he can do, but you're not thinking Bucky then takes this thing deep, and all of a no. sudden we got a different game. We thought that, you know, with Bucky, you know, the thing he had to worry about was, he you know, he's a pretty good contact mm-hmm. hitter. He could put the bat on the ball, but we were just mostly concerned that he, you know, the last thing in our mind was that he hit a home run. Right. You know, if Reggie or Nettles or somebody comes up, Shambles or somebody comes up and hits a home run, you know, they're supposed to hit home runs. And you think, well, Bucky, if he gets a hit, it's going to be a base hit somewhere. But that day he was extra special that day. And that ballpark actually came into play as well. You yep. know, you talk about where it was hit and how it was hit. That ballpark is the one that it goes out of. Right. Yeah. Um, a couple of more things with Carlton Fist. Thurman Munson, 1972, you guys had a little uh, – a discussion, I would say, at home plate. Did you not? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's funny how when you guys play this, especially the Red Sox-Yankee rivalry, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of guys play the same position, um, fighting for the same recognition, you know, the maybe the buying for the title of the best catcher in the American League. And uh, we used to have quite a rivalry, although I don't think it it was as, you know, it wasn't a vicious rivalry. There's a lot of circumstantial things happened on mm-hmm. that particular play. Uh, Gene Michaels up with a plate is supposed to have a squeeze play with Thurman Munson at third, and Michaels bunts right through the ball and, and stands in the way, and Thurman's coming down third baseline. And so I push Michaels out of the way. Thurman runs into me. We fall down. I throw him off. My, they know, and then things just start after that because of the intensity of the rivalry. But, but he, uh, he's the type of ball player, though, and I'm, I'm assuming that you respected oh, absolutely. immensely. Especially because of his position. Right. Um, I know what it takes to catch. He knew what it takes to catch. And we always, believe it or not, uh, we always greeted each other when he came up to the plate, when I came up to the plate. We had little conversations going on all the time. Um, it was never, and it was never accusatorial at all. I mean, it was no. It was not confrontational. It was, it was always, hey, months, how's how's it going? Hey, right. Fisky, how you doing? And, and that idea of you know whether it's the New England work ethic, whether it's the Yankees, Red Sox, a guy playing the same position, there's all star votes and all star appearances on the line. But if a guy goes about his business the right way, 
you have the respect on top of all of that, correct? That's, you know, that's, I think that he and I were from that same school. You know, our careers just paralleled each other just one year apart. He was the year before me, and, you know, the rookie of the year yep. things, the whole thing happens. You know, his wife's a year older than mine. His kids, he has three kids, the same a year older than mine. It's just, it was incredible, the, the parallels. Of and you play for career. the two teams that you play for. And, which... we, and we play for those <laughs> two teams. And, and you know, I don't think there's ever been a rivalry like that Yankees-Red Sox rivalry in the 70s. And, and maybe that's really comes to a head. Deion Sanders and uh, you and Deion had a moment. Yeah, we did. Um, but was that also part of you understanding what Yankee pinstripes meant? And I think we all understood that. I think growing up, you know, I grew up in New England as a, a – basically a Red Sox fan, and we had our home run derbies in the backyard, and it was always the Red Sox mm-hmm. against the Yankees. But it was always the Yankees, you know, and everybody knew what, uh, you know, what the the hold the Yankees had on the game of baseball. And even now there's a, you know, the, the Yankee mystique, the Yankee pinstripes. But uh, it meant, I think we all knew that even if it's, said in the light that, boy, everybody wants to beat the Yankees. Well, there's a reason why everybody wants to beat the Yankees. It's because the Yankees have that uh, have that history. You always want to take a shot at the guy with the belt. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the Dion situation, he actually apologized the next day, did he not? Uh, in his own way, okay. he did, yes. So it yeah. was just, let me throw this out there, as opposed to, oh, getting it, perhaps? Yeah. Yeah. And the last thing as we finish up with Carl Fist, do you think most baseball fans, and I'm not talking about the hardcore, the casual ones, do you think they know they... You spent more time in a White Sox uniform than a Red Sox uniform? Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. Uh, most people think I finished my career, ended up my career, played out the end of my career as a White Sox. But um, I spent uh, 13 and a half years in Chicago and uh, spent nine years in the major leagues as, as a Red Sox player. But I did spend four years in the minor league, so it all turns right. out to be about the same <laughs> amount of time in each organization you mentioned though you were not very happy leaving the red sox initially but was that maybe the first time that the business end of baseball slapped you i thought it was it went beyond business with the two people that uh, you know that took over the club or quote were unquote mm-hmm. the owners of the club at that time it went beyond business and became personal and there was going to be no reparation uh, in that relationship and as a result uh you know they did some illegal things in their contractual obligations and as a result i became a free agent and they didn't want me back so that's where i went elsewhere i've got to ask in 1986 when the red sox play the mets how does your mindset work are you rooting for the red sox or are you rooting against the red sox i would never root against the red sox i was rooting for the red sox all the way so it's the organization that you're okay with it was the people involved absolutely yeah so it didn't go any further than those two people that's right okay that's interesting um carlton fisk again hall of famer class of 2000 um, you mentioned chatting to Thurman. Were you a guy who talked behind a plate? Did you find there was an edge that you can gain by maybe doing that? No, I never used it to try to gain an edge because I didn't. When I came over the plate, I didn't want anybody to be, "Hey, batter, 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 batter." To right. me, you know. That's in other words, thing. in other words, if it was a greeting, hello. Yeah, that it would was be a greeting, hello. We had some good chats. You know, you take a crummy swing, you get, right. uh, you know, whatever. You you uh, you gig a little bit and laugh a little bit and say whatever you're going to say, but it was. It was never to try to to distract anybody or put anybody down or to gain an edge. I don't know whether uh, saying hello or saying, uh, you know, having some greeting would uh, 
take somebody mm-hmm. and take the edge off. I don't, you know, the good players that would never take the edge off. But uh, I remember, I mean, guys like George Brett used to come up, and he used to have such a good time playing. He'd always come up and say hey and <laughs> turn to the umpire and says, how's my favorite umpire today? <laughs> you know, Always working an angle. Always working an angle. But he's, you know, he did it all in fun, and right. he had a great time playing, and that's why I always love to play against the guys that have a good time playing. Well, Robin Young actually told me a couple of weeks ago he wished he could have been more like George externally internally he thought he was having a good time but george yeah. maybe had a better time than anybody externally i know exactly what he's talking yeah well carlton again i appreciate your time certainly a lot of memorable moments the 75 game six is the one people but tom Seaver's 300th game oh I mean, that was excellent you're talking about playing against and with the best perhaps that baseball has seen over and the last 35 what? years and guess what it was against the yankees yes it was on <laughs> phil rizzuto day by the way <laughs> That was the day that Rizzuto got tipped by the cow. That's right. The cow hip-checked hip him onto the ground. It was funny. Well, actually, Seaver has gone on to say that the only thing that could upstage my 300th win in New York is the fact that people talk more about Rizzuto getting knocked over by a cow. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, Carlton, I appreciate your time. I know you don't do a lot of this stuff. Uh, Class of 2000, as I said, Hall of Famer, certainly well-deserved. Um, I'm down to six living Hall of Famers, by the way. That's what I have left after Excellent. doing the show for this. And I appreciate you being one of those guys who is now off that list. Yeah, I appreciate that, too. I appreciate you calling. Good to talk to you. Well, thank you very much. Enjoy everything with the family life. Congratulations, by the way, on uh, on grandparenthood yes, as well. Yes, sir. That's been, that's, been, that's been excellent. Well, good for you. Have a great time. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Carl. All right. Bye. Well, in the 70s, there was a new generation of catchers that came along. Not just one here or there, but a generation of catchers. Bench and Boone. Carter and Parrish and Munson and Fisk. Hey, hey, go! Get out of back! Please my three! It is! Holy cow! Carlton Fisk has put the White Sox ahead! A line drive! I was afraid it might not get up high enough! There was the excitement of catching Tom Seaver as he approached his 300th win, and it was against the Yankees. Start playing this game right. I'm going to kick your ass right here. (laughs) 